The Canberra Times identified Bill Stevens as one of 75 people who had shaped the national capital. He is one of the region's best-known theatrical personalities, and although his career was in hospital administration, it has been through his passionate involvement in the performing arts nationally that he has made his most important contribution. He has carved a lengthy career as a theatre director with theatre companies in Griffith and Canberra, and for 15 years he was cabaret producer and artistic director at the Queen Beanne School of Arts Café. The School of Arts Café became the longest established and best-known cabaret venues in Australia. Commencing in 1985, Bill has been an interviewer for the National Library of Australia's Oral History Program, specialising in the performing arts and preserving vital conversations with artists across all disciplines and roles. Bill has spoken to everyone, and now it's my delight to speak with Bill and learn more about the passion and energy that has sustained him over several decades in a passionate pursuit of the performing arts and its practitioners. So you've had a good day? Had an excellent day, really, with this in my mind that I'll be just trying to get my mind focused on what you might ask me about. Oh, look, it's, we're, we're, just think of it as a, a friendly conversation amongst mates. Righto, we shall do that. That's easy how's, with you. <laughs> how's, um, how's the weather down in Canberra? Because uh, it's notoriously overcast. cold. No, it's not cold, but it is overcast and dreary. We headed up to about 16.5 at 12 o'clock. So that's not too bad. Oh, that's not too bad. A little burst of sunshine in the middle of the morning. We went out to coffee. Oh, excellent, excellent. Nice way to spend the day. It is. Now, Bill Stevens, you're, you're a practitioner, a commentator, a historian, and a, a passionate arts consumer. Marry that with your tremendous energy, and I, I guess it's fair to say that you love your work. I rather do. <laughs> yeah. I've been very fortunate to find a passion that I can involve myself with. And it keeps you very busy when you're wearing all of those uh, various hats. Well, they all sort of dovetail, Peter, so probably not as busy as I appear to be on paper. Now, can I, can I ask a gentleman his age? Because you've been doing this for quite a number of decades, haven't you? I have indeed. I was born on the 1st of January 1936, and you can do the maths. Very good, yes. I think that's fair enough. <laughs> Where did you grow up, Bill? Are you, are you a local Canberrian? No, no. I was born in Narendra. And I lived there until I was about 10. And then we moved across to Griffith in New South Wales. And I was educated in Griffith. And we lived there right up until 1971 when we moved to Queanbeyan. I've never lived in Canberra, but we chose to live in Queanbeyan because it was very close to Canberra, but we liked the country atmosphere having come from country. So does, does Queanbeyan have that uh, a very rural sensibility? Not particularly now, no. no. It, it, it's an old town and it was, its history goes back into the early 1918, 1918s and um, it has a lot of history and it was a history that attracted us and we knew it was very close within, really within 15 minutes of the centre of Canberra, close to the theatres, the art galleries, everything that we wanted in our lives when we came across. Did you grow up in an artistic family? As a boy, what was your exposure to the arts? None, actually. In Narandra, I've got recollections in my mind of going to, being taken to Worth Circus back in the days when it was a real, well, it seemed to be a really big circus to me. 
So I was probably about six when I was taken there. And I can even remember some of the acts then. And I remember going to a tent theatre and I believe I saw Nellie Small perform. She was a black lady who was doing a male impersonator act. And from what I've been able to find out in later years, that could have been Nellie Small. In fact, I believe it was. And I believe the tent theatre was probably Sawley's. Years later in Griffith, we used to, Sawley's used to come each year at showtime and they would set up their tent in Griffith not far from where we were living and I would, they would have three changes of the program and a panto uh, during the week. And I would go to each change of program and the panto, which was where I met Jenny Howard. She was a famous so, principal boy, wasn't she? She was indeed. And still was doing panto and principal boys when I came across her in Griffith. But as a young man, probably 15 or 16, I used to go to my aunt's place in Earlwood in Sydney and she would let me go out by myself each day and I'd spend the day in the city and I would spend it going from film to film and then I would go to the 5.30 session at the Phillips Street Theatre and then onto the Tivoli at 8 o'clock and that's how I'd spend two weeks of my life. I don't know where this came from, but I would go without food so that I had enough money to buy theatre tickets and a program. I love those programs, which I've kept. I've still got all my programs. But I sort of developed this passion for going to the theatre and then living in a country town that there weren't theatres there. So again, when I was had a job and I could afford it and bought a car and met Pat, who became a wife, we would drive to Melbourne and see shows down there. My Fair Lady, of course. Paint Your Wagon? Up. Paint Your Wagon, indeed. Yeah, around that time, yeah. Yeah. Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, all those original productions. Uh, Man of La Mancha. And, of course, uh, Funny Girl. No, I didn't see Funny Girl. Oh. Somehow I missed out on that and I missed out on South Pacific. But I did see Pajama Game with Tony Lamond and T. Taylor. And a lot of those shows I was lucky enough. And then we would drive to Sydney and spend every Easter in Sydney. We'd drive all night when I knocked off work on Friday. We'd drive all night and we'd go to the theatre all day Saturday and Sunday, whatever was on on Sunday, drive home on Monday. And I'd just soak up theatre. And magazines, I found theatre magazines like films and filmings and plays and players and and I would ferociously read the crits of the shows. Those magazines were fantastic, weren't they? I mean, now people have access to all of that information about what's happening on international stages by just going online. But the magic of those magazines was subscribing and then waiting monthly for them to arrive and then just devouring them. Exactly, was the thrill of them. And the writing was very good in those because they'd often seen two crits to the same show. One would be looking at the music, the other would be looking at the production. And you got a very good idea. So when you actually saw the show, like My Fair Lady, I'd seen the photos and I'd read the crits and it was exactly like I imagined it would be. So it was a bit of an anticlimax in a way because you, you just thought, <laughs> well, I've seen all this. But also I've got a passionate interest in dance and... 
the the reviews of the ballets, the Royal Ballet and and the various companies that were working, Ballet Rombert and those companies, when I actually got to see their ballets, I was surprised at how they were exactly as I imagined they would be, even the movement was described so well by those crits. And I, I developed a passion then for reading criticisms. So this sort of fe just fed into information. For me, it was just my hobby and my interest. I had no ambitions to go into theatre. It wasn't something a, you know, a country boy could consider in those days. We didn't have NIDA and we didn't have... I don't know how you would get into theatre. I would just go to the theatre, go to the Tivoli, go to the Theatre Royal, all those wonderful theatres. My father worked on the railway. He started off as a fettler uh, as long as I can remember. And then he got a job as a guard on the railway in Griffith. That was why we moved to Griffith. And for the first few years we lived in Griffith, we lived in tents in the railway yards. In those days, wow. the railway would provide their workers with tents for their families. And being an industrious person, my father built us this wonderful series of tents which had three bedrooms and a what they call a family room now with a big open fire and everything. So we lived in the railway yards and the height of each year would be when Bullen's Circus train arrived. Bullen's Circus would travel by rail and this train would pull in at the weekend and they had about 14 elephants it was a huge circus, lots of animals. They took a whole zoo with them and you would hear the lions growling at early in the morning and we'd jump out of bed and right in front of us was the train with all the, the thing. Then the circus would be in the railway yards, further up, and before we went to school, we could watch them set this big circus up. Could hardly wait to get out of school and we'd come down and we'd watch them doing the, all preparation for the circus. One year, I plucked up courage and got a job there as a soft drink seller. I lasted one night because all I wanted to do was watch the circus, and I wasn't didn't sell very many drinks, but it didn't matter. I'd sell the circus, and that was so. That business of performance always sort of fascinating. And Sawleys in those days, what they would do is they would hire the top international acts or a selection of the top international acts that were appearing in the Tivoli. And um, Bobby Lebrun would offer those acts one year of touring with him uh, in, uh, around inner Australia. And then they'd go back and be announced at the Tivoli the next year as returning direct from London, but they haven't left the <laughs> country. And Jenny Howard was one of those people. And I'd seen her at the Tivoli. I'd seen her in the Pantos in the Tivoli and also in their variety shows. And then when she came to town in Sawleys, I thought, wow. But Murray Fields, all those sort of people would come in Sawleys. It was a fantastic show. And it was very much based on the Tivoli variety shows. So they would have big uh, scenes an opening scene, a first act closer, a second act opener, and a, sec a, a finale, which would be quite lavish canvas roll-down settings and that. They'd have a, a ballet of six girls. They had a live orchestra of about six musicians. Uh, and then they'd have the specialty acts and the, the, the um, scene would drop down in front between the acts. And they had some marvellous 
Dorothy Neal and Paul Newton were a couple of uh, Adagio dance actors. I think it was one of the best of those sort of acts I ever saw. And various other ones which used to come out from overseas, international acts, and Solis would tour them. Years later, I got to interview Bobby Lebrun and his wife, Gracie, and captured the story of of what it was like to move these shows around with three different shows, completely different, and a panto. And they were always beautifully costumed, and the pantos in particular, which is what I used to like about the Sydney pantos, because I sort of really love theatre spectacle, and the Tivoli ones, the pantos, were often the big scenes out of the variety shows that were showing at the night would be on they would use many of the scenes out of that in the panto. So the pantos always look gorgeous. Wow. So you were fascinated and you certainly appreciated the, the circuits in inverted commas, but you didn't necessarily want to run away and join it because you no. became a hospital administrator, didn't you? That was my career and it remained my career right up until many years into the time of the School of Arts Cafe, up until 1992, when I discovered that I was having more fun in the School of Arts Cafe than I was administering hospitals. So I jumped off and that then made a big leap in what we were doing with the School of Arts Cafe at that time. There are many strings to your bow and it might be a challenge to cover everything uh, chronologically, but um, let's take a look at some of the hats that you've worn and, and you've started us off on the School of Arts Cafe, which of course became a, a, a prominent place for cabaret. Uh, around the nation. It was it was known and, and you had some great acts that travelled there and audiences that would travel to Queanbeyan. Tell us about the School of Arts Cafe and, and how that was set up and came to be. Righto. In 1986, I was directing a production of Kismet in the Canberra Theatre and this little cafe in the main street of Queanbeyan became available. The cafe had originally been, what was the cafe then, originally been a hardware shop, and three years earlier, two ladies had got the lease of it and converted it in this really lovely little cafe. It was just a part of what was the original School of Arts in Queenbian, and this was what had been the ladies' reading room and men's billiard room, and these two ladies had then converted it into a cafe. And... It had a very high ceiling with skylights that lets the sun stream in during the day and they had lovely hanging ferns and things. So at that time, my son, Tim, had just finished a hospitality management course at the local um, TAFE and my wife, Pat, had a little cafe in a mill house around the corner from the main street and that was pottering along. We thought, oh... This little cafe is so nice, we, if we could buy that, we could put Tim into the cafe, he could build it up and sell it and make a fortune and set himself up in his own restaurant or whatever he wanted to do later. And this became our sort of mission to build the cafe up. Morning and afternoon teas and light lunches was what we were going to do when we got in there. We put in a bid, we got it to our surprise and started to get popular and this was in about the January we we bought it and we moved in in the March very soon because I was working on this production of Kismet 
someone suggested, why don't you open on Sunday nights? Oh, sorry, Thursday night, Thursday night trading. And we thought, oh, yes, because in the production of Kismet I was doing, there was a marvellous little tenor, a Korean tenor who was studying at the School of Music in Canberra, and he got a scholarship to the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia and was trying to earn some money to get himself across there. And another young woman who was studying at the School of Music was Annabelle Redman, who went on to have a career in opera in uh, Europe. But at those days, they were just students. And I said to Sankey, Kim was his name, would you like, somehow he mentioned that he worked as a kitchen hand. I said, oh, I can offer you some work as a kitchen hand in the cafe. And then someone suggested this opening it might have even been me because we had discovered the cafe had a really nice acoustic and we thought, why can't we put on a show here? And, and Sankey could sing. And then people inspired by that movie deep in my heart. I don't know whether you've ever seen that, but it's no. a movie about the life story of a composer of operetta, but he had this lovely cafe or his friend had it where every night everyone after the show would all go back onto this to this cafe and they would all sing. It's a lovely movie, if you ever get the chance. But inspired by that, I thought this would be good and people can come here after the theatre and we'll have someone singing. Within about two months, we were opening Wednesday, well, Thursday, Fridays and Saturday nights. I, in Griffith, I was a, a founder member of the Griffith Amateur Musical Review Company. So for 13 years there, I had produced a series of reviews based on the civilly, civilly basis in the local uh, Memorial Hall. Part of the reason for moving to Canberra was that in that 13 years, I got so involved in producing shows, sometimes for a year, or sharing them with other directors and it had taken over our lives so that when we were married and I'd met Pat sort of through the review company she was a dancer she would be in the ballets and our children as they were born would be carried down in little carry bags and stuffed under the tables in the memorial hall while we did rehearsals and did the shows and when we built our house we built a lounge room big enough that I could rehearse there and it had taken over our life. And then one day we were sitting across the, the table thinking, well, look, we've met, we've married, we have our two beautiful children, and the only thing left for us is to die here if we sit around long enough. Oh, and then we thought we'd better make a move before the kids get too old to move and they get their friends and all that. They won't want to move. So we chose, we thought Canberra's the place. They're building the National Gallery there. There, uh, It's got a big theatre, the Canberra Theatre had only been opened in 1965. And I'll give up theatre and we'll just go and see shows and I'll work on my career and we'll do all this. Come over, that was the plan, got a job as the paymaster at the local hospital. We built a house here uh, in Queenden and Repertory, the Canberra Repertory Society advertised for a bar manager. And I said to Pat, this would be good. We can just stay on the periphery of things. We can go in and do the bar a couple of nights a week whenever that was running and watch all the shows because they were doing really good shows. Ross McGregor was the resident artistic director there at that time. Who's the and husband Ross, of Angela Punch, wasn't he? Isn't he? Angela Still, Punch. Yes. McGregor was Ross's wife. But his wife before Angela was 
Norma, who became Norma McGregor, who had been a pianist for me back at the, the, the review company in Griffith. And she was a wonderful young pianist. And she started with me at age 16 and would be able to play, because she could play by ear, all the shows we were doing. Anyway, she married Ross. So I was a bit down on Ross, actually, because he'd taken my pianist. And he moved across here. Anyway, we got, and while I was working at the bar, I tried not to talk about what I'd been doing, but the word got round that I was, had been a director. And one day the local Philharmonic Society advertised for expressions of interest for someone, and they used, uh, for, for directors. They were putting their shows on the brand new Canberra Theatre. Well, it was six years. Well, by that time, it was 10 years old, 1976. And I said to Pat, look, just one show with flies that go up and everything is in the Canberra Theatre. It was this, you know, just one show. So I put in an application and the fellow said, yeah, you can do a show. What would you like to do? And I said, oh, I'd like to do Maine. They said, fine. I said, good. And this was about six months out, so I spent my time doing all the preparation for a production of MAME. In the Pretty meanwhile... Big show to do, MAME. Yeah, but I was Ambitious. I had big ideas. Look, <laughs> I, I wanted to be Florence Siegfeld and Bob Fosse together. Excellent. And I, I thought I could do that. The, uh, another company offered me the opportunity to do a review. Easy peasy, I thought, because reviews are what I do. So... I took that on and then Philo came back and we said, oh, Bill, we decided we can't do MAME. It's going to be too expensive, which gave me a bit of a surprise because no one had asked me for a budget <laughs> at that stage. I thought that would come later. Like we hadn't talked budget, but all of a sudden it was too expensive. They said, yeah. so what else would you like to do? So I thought, well, I've done a production of Annie Get Your Gun, so I know that show back to front so let's do any get your gun because i know and i also knew i could put my hand on costumes and things like that because i was tied up now with a review so the review came first and then i did any get your gun for philo and that as it turned out was successful and then that led to 10 years of working with the philharmonic society in the canberra theater and doing a whole lot of shows there so that at the time, 10 years on, from 76 to 86, we bought the cafe, the School of Arts Cafe. In that time, as I became the, uh, the Philharmonic Society's first artistic director after a while, that meant I sat in on all the audition panels for whatever shows they were doing, for whatever directors they were doing, besides my own. So over about 10 years, I had auditioned hundreds, if not thousands, of people and every so often you spot someone who is remarkable and you think oh people should know about that Canberra was a very good still is a very good place to be because at that time I'm talking 76 Opera Australia would come to Canberra for a week and they'd do three productions full productions because of the Canberra Theatre uh, the Australian Ballet would come for a week maybe a fortnight and they would do several ballets International companies would come through to be seen in Canberra and all the state companies would present something in Canberra because the money was emanating out of Canberra. So for a place to see theatre, lots of shows never went to Sydney. They would come to Canberra and, and that still happens to a degree, but not as much as it did back then. And at that time I'd done 10 years with Philo and I thought it's probably time 
to give it up because all of a sudden I had another passion. And we yeah. started this idea that the cafe would present entertainment. We knew that to survive as a business in the cafe, we needed to attract patronage from Canberra because a little town like Queen is not a little town, it's a city in actual fact, but it couldn't support like a, a cafe doing the entertainment aspect of the cafe. The entertainment aspect was my responsibility because Timothy was venue management and Pat, of course, was involved to make up the triumvirate and she would do the administration and buying and all those sorts of things, 101 jobs. At, also at that time, there was a school of music where young Opera, uh, opera singers were coming to train to be professional opera singers. So that, uh, there were young jazz, there was a jazz faculty, so that it was attracting jazz players from all over the country. Um, a very live theatre scene, um, uh, Repertory did an annual music hall, which was as good as a professional. Uh, a whole lot of interesting people, diplomats who, people who were, could have been entertainers, but had chosen a life as a diplomatic and had been in shows overseas and that, come back. Some of them had retired, some of them were just passing through. But there was this a whole lot of very interesting people. For instance, one of the people who was in the cast of Kismet was a woman at that stage, I later learned, she was in her 50s, about mid-50s. And she auditioned for Kismet but there wasn't really a role for her, but she had this obviously remarkable modern jazz voice. And I offered her a role as a handmaiden in Kismet. But then when we opened the cafe, she was one of the first people I turned to because I learned in a conversation with her that she had been a lounge singer in Reno and Las Vegas for years, had married and her husband asked her immediately to give up her career, the marriage was got shaky. She accepted a job with the American Embassy to come out in administration and to do something, something to do, join the, re, the Philharmonic Society. I thought, Norma, and I'll put Norma and Connie together because Norma can play anything you could throw at her. And they were a match made in heaven. So they become some of the very early performers at the School of Arts Cafe. And Sankey Kim, this brilliant young um, Korean with a voice, and it's no exaggeration, a very Italian and Caruso sounding tenor, sang there for about six months before he went over to Philadelphia. So with people, that's, that's what we started the cafe and people started to take notice and, and we were drawing that. For the first six years, there were enough people around Canberra that I love developing cabaret acts on these on particular people. So whether they're a jazz person or an opera singer or a music theater person or whatever, so long as they had something special to offer, I took a lot of pleasure of taking that material and shaping it into a format. In the early years, the format was six 10 minute sections. So each that the performer would be asked to prepare six little segments. Sometimes it would be two performers and a pianist, one performer and a pianist, depending, it might have been a little group. And they had to talk about their song and they had to change costume every time, every 10 minutes. So I thought, 
most of them will not have had the experience to uh, keep the audience engaged for that. They could for 10 minutes. I'd work with them selecting repertoire, rehearse them during the days or, or the nights that we were working. Monday and Tuesday were rehearsal nights. They'd come out after work, we'd rehearse. And these were people with talent and facility. They were uh, trainings with or with ideas in music theatre that if they were young, they were, wanted to be going to music theatre. To the point that in 1992, so we'd been running six years, we had developed shows that I thought were good enough to show in Sydney. I learned that Tilbury, as it turned out, also the Tilbury Hotel in Sydney had started in the same year, in 1986. I didn't learn this till much later, but it, it just happened that they started at the same time as School of Arts Cafe. But I worked a, sort of alone, developing my or our own style and everything. And we called it Cabaret because also in Canberra at that time, there was a really good restaurant that was doing theatre restaurant, which was a different sort of genre. And I didn't want to um, compete with what they were doing. And theatre restaurant, as of the style they were doing, wasn't something that I had a particular interest in. So I was looking for a different style. And so I thought cabaret's a thing, it, it, that's variety. But I really liked the idea of the artist talking about what they do because I thought some of the, an opera singer, if I advertise an opera singer, no one wants to, that people who wouldn't go to classical music in a fit would not come. But if I called it cabaret, and and I'd, I'd seen cabaret acts, of course, and I, I, I knew what they were all about. So it was based on that, that cabaret idea. Eventually it moved into, from six little acts to three longer acts, and then we eventually got from 1992 on down to a two-act show. From day one, the first acts I presented and right through was always professional. I always paid my artists, even though they weren't professionals, a fee because I wanted to be able to keep control of what they did at the cafe. Whereas if people are doing it as a uh, people would have performed for nothing. And I said, no, I don't want you. I will pay you a fee and I want your performance to be professional level. That's what we're aiming from. So therefore I could say to them, I want you to rehearse and, and I'll rehearse you. And when we're ready, I'll present you for two weeks, always a two week season because I wanted them reviewed. And so early from right early in the first acts were always reviewed, uh, found out who the, the reviewers were and cultivated the reviewers. Then we started moving into uh, tourism. So I cultivated the, uh, the tourism organizations, all that sort of stuff. Over the time, it started to build. And by the sixth year in, I thought, well, I'm enjoying this more than I'm enjoying my career, which was what was financing the cafe, I suppose, because it wasn't about making money. It was about putting on a show. And maybe we can make the cafe supporters. Now, so I retired from that. And the other, another idea has come to my mind because back in 1985, I was offered the opportunity to 
interview for the National Library. And this brought one of my earlier interviews was with June Bronhill. And I recorded about 10 hours of interview with June Bronhill, who at that stage was still in, very much in her career. So 1992, I just, Tilbury came up with the idea of the Legends series, which was based on the, uh, and you'll probably know of it, the first ones they would put a music theatre person, an opera person, and a jazz person. I think the first ones might have been June Bronhill, Jill Perryman, and I think Kerry Bedell. Yes. And they were yes. asked to prepare a cabaret based on their life. So um, songs that have been influential in their career and songs that had influenced them and tell the story of how they got to become who they were. I really love that idea of the, and that's the word with cabaret, that you find something out about the person. Then about the second year, I found out where the Tilbury was and went to see one of these shows. Loved it. So I approached June Bronhill because I had had a little rapport with her, she knew who I was. Would she come to the School of Arts Cafe in Queenbian and present her autobiographical cabaret there? I had an addendum to, I, I said to her, but, and if you do, I would like you to use an accompanist from Canberra because the whole point of the cafe at that point was to foster young artists who might go on to have a career or older artists who were looking for an outlet to do work. And she said, well, look, I want to audition him. And that was Peter J. Casey. Oh. And Peter probably wasn't the best fit for June because he was a, a pianist who played majorly by ear. Another one. I, I love those pianists who could just play what you asked them to play, move up and down it's the a, scale. a gift, that. isn't it? Yeah, and and there were a few of them at that time in Canberra, and I, so accompanists were very important to me. As so, I often, if you had the right accompanist, I would take you sight unseen. So I took Peter down to June's apartment in Sydney, and she gave him a hell of a test. Put stuff in front of him. He, Peter could play music too, and she put down the, the several easier pieces just to feel him out and then she put in front of him the song that was written for her for ah, the the musical it's two Robert names. And Elizabeth Robert and Elizabeth that's that's that, is that June on the phone <laughs> saying you got it wrong, <laughs> you got it wrong. Um, yes Robert and Elizabeth Edit that. Robin Elizabeth, um, and there, it's, a, it's a very short song, but it's a, a brilliant and it's really hard. And she, she put it in front of Peter and he went into it and June went and she looked behind me and I was sitting over on the, on the couch and she just put her thumb up and said, he's in, because he managed it really well. So June agreed to come to the cafe for a month uh, in Queenbian in this little 60, 60 people space and perform for a month. I so she would, she would move to Queen Bean for a month? Yep. I would yeah. provide her with accommodation and she did stay at the local motel, one of the motels. How many shows and a week? Wednesday to Saturday and two matinees. 
matinee on Wednesday and matinee on Saturday. I thought I wouldn't be able to cope with the people who wanted to come to see June Bronhill. As it turned out, she never had to perform. It would have been seven performances a week because we cut the matinees. Only the matinees, we do it all the nights. And in the middle of it, she caught a, a dose of the flu and she also lost her hearing aids, which co- uh, she'd felt that the, the, uh, the motel dog, which was a big hound dog, had eaten her hearing aid. And so for a lot of it couldn't hear. However, she did every performance and even with the flu, she'd get out of bed, she'd come down, she'd put on all the slap and she looked and just turn into this wonderful looking soul and enchant with the audience night after night. And we did well with her, but what that opened up for me was the possibility, I then approached Nancy Hayes and Tony Lamond and Kerry Bedell and Jill Perryman, but Jill was living in Perth at that time, she said, I can't come now, but I will come, I promise you. If ever I get a job in Sydney, I will let you know and I will come. True to her word, a couple of years later, get a ring. Jill Perryman here, darling. I'm coming to the Tilbury for a season. Would you like me to come to your cafe? And oh, I said, Jill, I would love that. <laughs> and so once it started, and then as show people talk, and, and I sort of geared on that a bit, people began to talk about what, uh, you know, that it was a place that if they're invited, go. And I always with them, I would go to Sydney and chat about what I could offer because I didn't want the artist to arrive and discover that they were going to be unhappy because I wanted to make magic every night. And it, it, it sort of worked very well. I remember talking with Geraldine Turner and I said, you know, what do you need? She said, just two things. I want a good mic, I want a piano, and I want a spotlight, three things. And I said, yeah, I can give you all those. And she said, right, I'll come. And and true to her word, she never asked for anything more every night. And Jill, uh, sorry, Geraldine did several seasons. Most Most of the people there came back for more than one season they did several seasons and every night they would just you know perform do what they do jenny little uh, bought a marlena show didn't she even before that she bought hello darling which was her first show that she did at the tilbury which was a variety you know covering her career and almost a trailer load of costumes arrived with jenny and then she Barry had um, said during that season, um, we're, we're looking at doing a Malena show because one of the segments in Hello Darling was a Malena Dietrich segment. They thought we could do, develop a whole show on that. Jeannie, I said, well, look, why don't you come to the cafe, do it for two weeks, and then the Tilbury had taken it on. They said they would... Um, do the show right in so when you take it to Sydney and open at the Tilbury this is like the out of town tryout and that show from the opening night to the final night in a two week season changed dramatically because Jeannie had been over ambitious and she'd made all these costumes and often they were full changes full strip changes 
And she had for her accompanist, Peter J. Casey. And she bought, and Peter was to fill in, uh, do a number in between these changes. So Jeannie would come out and do whatever segment in the history of Marlene Dietrich. Then Jeannie would go off stage was the plan that, but these changes were too many and too ambitious. So it took a long time. So Peter had to pad. That was the first night. Also, Jeannie came on being very artistic and people just didn't know what to make of it because they had already done a season as Jeannie and they came to see lovely Jeannie Little. And this was this was this wonderful looking Marlena character. The very, very next night, we would sit round after every meal for the whole time we were at the cafe, we would sit down with the artists at the end of the night and have a slap up meal. Because a lot of artists don't like to eat before the um, show because they don't want to get food stuck in their throat. And there was nowhere to eat in Queen Bin after, so we would put on a, um, a meal for the for the, the artists. And we would talk and we would talk about the show, how it went tonight, what we've got to do better for tomorrow night, all this sort of thing. That started with our local artists, but then when the guest artists started to come in, then it continued, that was champagne every night. And that was the best time because you you got to know the, those artists and that meant you could offer things if they gave you an opening and being a director, okay, it's hard to help yourself not to offer <laughs> or improvements. So anyway, coming back on the Genie show, we, 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 you know, we said, right, Genie, what you've got to do is once you come, not what you've got to do, I think what you should do is say, look, I'm Genie, and I, 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 after you do your opening number and, and, uh, and then, you know, I, I couldn't be Marlene Dietrich, but I want to pay tribute to her and I want to tell you her story, all that. So the script was rewritten and Barry, her husband, was a director at that point because he, he had directed the show. But Jeannie would come down every day. Uh, once the, the lunch time was over, 2.30, the cafe would close it. In would come Jeannie and we'd rehearse all afternoon, the changes, and we'd try them that night. We'd talk about them over dinner at the end of the night and um, come back next day, rehearse more. The Tilbury boys, Michael and Jeffrey, uh, came down to see the show, to see what they'd bought. And that was quite a night. We were very nervous and I was really nervous to have the boys from the Tilbury looking at us and what we were doing. Um, but anyway, the show opened in at the Tilbury in Sydney and of course just went like, uh, wildfire and Jeannie toured it all over and each time she came back it would be she would trim some of the de the costumes and details away which was good because it's always more, uh, less is more uh, you know if you can just like it's that the rule for dressing is uh, get dressed, look at yourself in the mirror and take something off just drop one item off whatever you decide was good for the night and that sort of is a good rule. Well, that's also another act that did that was Jennifer Leslie. Jennifer yeah. Leslie developed, it's not a name that just sort of jumps out at you, but she was a, a very um, well-known actor in Sydney at the time. She developed a, a show on Edith Piaf, which she did at the Zenith Theatre, I think it was, uh, in one of the suburban theatres. And it was a beaut show, but it required a big set and all that sort of thing. 
I invited her to bring it because I loved the story of Piaf. And I said, would you bring that to the School of Arts Cafe? Well, she did many, many times. We could, it would pack the place every season that Jennifer bought the Piaf show. It would come. And each time she bought it, she stripped more of the um, presentation away so that the show more and more focused on Jennifer as Piaf. And each time she took something away, it seemed to be get better and better. Um, uh, because we were getting the person yeah. more than, than the periphery thing. We would always, decorating the stage is very important because I always felt that ambience is very important, you know, and that was one of the things I loved about the cafe. It had a beautiful ambience. And one of the things that struck me when I discovered where the Tilbury was, there was nothing when I went there, apart from the stage sitting there that said that they did shows or who had been there. I'd expected to go and have round the walls, all these famous people who had appeared at the Tilbury. And I'd made my business when we opened the cafe that it would have interesting walls. And so from the start, the first pictures I'd blown up photographs from productions that I had done in the Canberra Theatre. It was always good photos, so I'd blown up big photos of those and some of the people who would perform there who were in these shows and other people were just interesting pictures. As people performed, they would take publicity shots and we would frame them and their photo would go on the wall. So after 15 years, those walls were chock-a-block with photos but and... and we did a renovation. It started off when we took the cafe over in the first few years. It was beige and brown. And that was nice. It was very tasteful. But the owner, because we never owned it, we only rented it, decided he would paint it for us because it was starting to look a bit tired. So I chose red, theatrical red for all the walls and the ceiling and green that had a zinc dado around the walls up until about table height. You this, made quite a few uh, recordings also, didn't you? You yep. recorded the shows on CD. We had recorded the show right from very early when the cafe started. I was approached by a radio station, for which I now work, uh, Art Sound, uh, to record our shows which they could use for radio programs. I agreed to that because I thought this is a good way of publicising what we do because they can play it over the radio. People here maybe be uh, tempted into coming and seeing what we were doing. So over the years, we started off, they were recording them on, I started off recording in the cafe on a little cassette machine. And then when the Art Sound started recording, they came in with reel-to-reel recorders and they would record and they were a group of volunteer people. And then... They introduced that recording, digital. And the first show that we recorded there was Nancy Hayes' Nancy with an E. Uh, And that, at the time, the sound was so remarkable that we got on this digital that I thought, wow, we could make a record out of this. And it was the time when CDs were still young. They almost disappeared now, but they were young then. And they had the facility that you could program. So if you want to play track one, four, and seven, you could just program your machine and do that. And I thought, if we did a, a whole show, 
we could program just the songs or we could program uh, and, the, and the dialogue we could put on different tracks connecting dialogue and you could listen to the whole story as you're driving along in the car on a trip or you could just if you just want to play them songs you could just program and it'll just play the songs i thought that wouldn't be terrific cd let you do that because prior to that most of the recordings were cassettes so you just whatever was on the cassette ran through you couldn't interrupt it or whatever we edited nance's show and i took that little cd down to sydney and i went through the phone book got the list of all the recording companies i could find and went round them all starting out with all the big ones ema or emi all those sort of ones all of them said oh yeah not what we do not not very interesting and about the last one I went to was Larrikin Records and Warren Fay was the head of Larrikin Records. And Warren said right away, leave it with me. I think it's a good idea. And then he rang me a few days later and said, Bill, I want to progress this idea. Now, it was always going to be aimed at collectors because I thought I buy cabaret records. My main purpose is to... Um, get repertoire, find good songs, all that sort of thing. So if I buy cabaret records of, of English people and American people, why wouldn't English people and cabaret people buy records of Australian performance if they were well known? That was my reasoning. And that's the pitch I made to Warren. We said, well, it will make it as a collector series. And he said, "I'll because the problem was it's easy to make the recording. You've got to get it distributed. And he said, I can distribute this overseas at Footlight and um, the London variation of that. Dress Circle, so Dress Circle, wasn't it? Yeah. Dress Circle, Most, yeah. In London and New York, they, they will take some. So I thought, yeah, this will get us an international reputation. Also, once you get your record into someone's collection, you uh, people re remember those artists. And I was sort of inspired way back on this getting your record into the collection thing and cabaret with the audience, a live recording rather than a studio recording. Because one of my favourite records when we were kids was Hori Dargi's, there was a, a, a vinyl of Hori Dargi and his sextet, quartet, whatever, the Hori Dargi band, live at the Sydney Town Hall. And that recording was just a live recording of a concert and it had lots of funny material in it and all that sort of thing. And I loved the audience response and the jokes and all those sort of things that, that I liked that live recording. So I was keen that we keep in that live aspect of it. And at that time, I wasn't aware of any recordings of Australian artists that you could get that were recorded live. I'm sure there were others, but I wasn't aware of them. Anyway, we set up doing this series. We recorded eight. And then as these things happened, Larrikin was taken over by festival, I think. And they said, oh, this is too, too small a market for what we're doing. Thank you. So what I then did was made them an offer. And I thought, I don't want these records turning up on, in op shops and things. I want to, the less over ones. I, I will buy them. And... So I made them an offer and bought all the unsold 
copies that they had. Quite a few of them reside under our bed right at present, but I've got them and that's better than having them around. But Brilliant. Also, Thank goodness you did because it's a, it's a wonderful collection and great to hear a lot of those artists who don't have a broad repertoire of recordings. Well, this was the thing with Ness. So at that stage, we're talking now 20, nearly 30 years ago, there was the only recordings I could find of Nance Hayes was the, the soundtrack recording of 42nd Street. And... And Chicago, were, probably. And Chicago. And, and there may have been others where she was, had been, but they were, it was pretty rare to hear Nancy Hayes' voice. And this little show, Nancy with an E, her first one, which had been written for her by Tony Sheldon, to me, it's always been a template for the ideal cabaret show and Nancy had not done another show since that until she did Haze at the Haze last year and that also written by Tony Sheldon we've preserved this little show on CD for posterity but what I loved about it was because Nancy in that show there are a couple of segments where she does a little thing on Chicago and another one on Guys and Dolls where she actually dropped into the character that she and it's just a lovely little compressed version. And I love those little segments and, and various other things that she'd done. So we were doing leading ladies, so I'd invite them to come to the cafe and we would record their show with the idea that it would become a CD during the course of the, um, the run, the two weeks, all of which was done. And I then had the idea that there were leading men that we really should be capturing too. People like Bruce Barry and uh, Rod McLennan and um, Derek Metzger, these sort of people who were, uh, their stories about being a leading man and, and the shows they did. Because I like that idea that they would repeat part of how they performed a certain character in their shows. So I then started writing these but then festival took over and the only one we of the men that we made was dennis olson's uh so the others were recorded but they never got produced as cds and tony barber was one of those however all these recordings that we made during that time have just been put into the national film sound archives and so they'll be there with the idea that if people are making documentaries in years to come, not only the sound recordings, but videos of those shows that were videoed, because we then started videoing the shows. I've always had a strong idea of history, and I've been in my mind that the technology will keep improving, as it did when we got to DATS, and that even if our videos weren't that perfect of the earlier shows, they would find ways of restoring those. And that's come to pass in actual fact, not that any of the cafe videos have been restored at this point. But in years to come, when people are writing stories about David Campbell's life or doing TV documentaries and things on them, these little where they started off at will be goldmine for them to find some of the earlier performances. Bill, it's been fantastic talking to you today about the School of Arts Cafe and that extraordinary period in uh, Australian entertainment. I'm sure listeners are going to be very thrilled to hear uh, memories. I'm sure they've visited, but but also just uh, to hear what it took to sort of build an organisation, a, a venue like that, and um, and to celebrate it today. So thank you very much for uh, for joining us on Stages. 
Peter, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Bill is a fascinating fellow, and you must agree, a man of many talents who has contributed enormously to the arts in Australia over many years. A perfect example of why the arts are essential to a community to keep us engaged, informed, energised and to access a virtual fountain of youth. My guest today, Bill Stevens. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday. I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends. I greatly appreciate that. Until next time, I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well. I'll catch you next time.